Welcome to Food Psych, a podcast about intuitive eating, health at every size, and taking down diet culture. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm an anti-diet registered dietitian and certified intuitive eating counselor, offering online courses and programs to help people all over the world make peace with food. Join me here every week as I talk with interesting people from all walks of life about their relationships with food and their bodies. Hey there, welcome to episode 147 of Food Psych. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and today I'm talking with Jennifer Rollin, a health at every size therapist and writer. We talked about why weight stigma in the eating disorder field is so harmful, how health at every size contributed to her own healing of her body image and breaking down her learned fat phobia problem with using the term weight management and so much more. It's a great conversation and I can't wait to share it with you in just a moment. But first, I'm going to answer this week's listener question, which is from a listener named Danny who writes, I've always had a difficult relationship with food. In my family, all the women are thin except for the males. To the members of my family, especially for my father, I would have had a more difficult life just due to the fact that I was a bit bigger than the other girls. I always gave in, practiced sports, went to the gym and restricted and binged and that was never enough. After some time, I managed to just let it go and talk to my father and let him know that my weight should not be equal to my worth and that I was still attractive and had a great heart even though I was a bit bigger than the other girls out there. Now, after a couple of years, these feelings and pressures came back thanks to my boyfriend's parents who have criticized my weight since the first time they met me. I guess just to sum up, how do I not let these feelings come back and take over my life? They've always been in the back of my mind, and now that some other people poked them, I'm feeling very lost. So thanks, Danny, for that great question. And uh, before I answer, just my standard disclaimer that these answers are for informational and educational purposes only and aren't a substitute for individual medical or mental health advice. So this is a great question. And first of all, I want to say kudos to you for speaking up to your father, because that is hard to do. It takes a lot of courage to set boundaries with family members and We've talked about that a lot on the podcast before. We talked about it a few weeks ago with Rachel Milner and boundary setting is really tough. So it's super great that you did that. And it sounds like it really helped you to feel more self-confident and to have a better relationship with food and your body, which is awesome. In terms of dealing with your boyfriend's parents, I want to say it's completely not okay for them to criticize your weight or anything to do with your body or you in general. It's terrible for them to do that. You deserve so much more respect than that. And it's completely out of line for them to make those kinds of comments. It's bad enough for your own family members to do that. But when it's someone else's family, it's just completely beyond the pale. I mean, it's never okay, really. But I think our own family members think that they're allowed or permitted a certain amount of intimacy in criticizing us and saying things to us about our bodies or whatever. And you have to set those boundaries there, just like you did with your father. But it's really inappropriate for people who are not so close to you, like your own family, to even conceive of saying anything like that to you. So even if they think they're helping, you got to shut it down. And in terms of how to deal with it, I would say it's not so much something that you have to deal with internally. Like, you know, it sounds like your question was sort of like, how do I not feel so triggered or upset about this? I think you have every reason to feel triggered and upset about this. And as you go through the process of making peace with food and your body, you'll probably feel less and less triggered by these things just over time as you heal. But it's always traumatic. It's always problematic to be stigmatized for your weight or for any other thing about you that you can't change. And weight is something that, as you've seen in your own efforts, you can't change. It's not a very malleable aspect of our 
being, of our physical being, just like height or eye color or hair color. There's not much you can do to change it because dieting, which we've been told is the way to change it, doesn't work. It fails in the long term for 90 some odd percent of people. And the people that it does quote unquote work long term for basically are only doing it through disordered means. That would be considered an eating disorder in people who started out in smaller bodies. So all of that is to say your weight is not within your control and it's not okay for people to criticize others based on something that's not in their control. You know, for something like your behavior, if you were to do a behavior that annoyed another person, they could say something about it and you could do something to change it. But when it comes to things that are beyond your control, being criticized for that is just, it's oppressive, really. And so I don't know if it's them directly criticizing your body to your face or whether it's them telling your boyfriend behind your back and then him telling you, which is another whole can of worms that we'll get to in a minute. But if it's them criticizing you to your face, I know it can be scary to speak up, but you absolutely need to advocate for yourself and let them know that it's not okay to say those things to you. You can do it in a civil tone and say something like, it's hurtful and upsetting to me when you talk about my body size in a critical way, and I'm going to have to ask you to stop doing that. And you could even mention that this is an example of weight stigma and that research shows that experiencing weight stigma makes people less healthy, especially if they're concerned trolling you about your health. That's a good thing to bring up. And if they bring it up again after you ask them to stop, you can remind them of what you said and tell them that you're going to have to leave the room, leave the conversation, leave the house or stop seeing them. Whatever feels right in the moment, let them know what the consequence is of violating that boundary. And remember that you're allowed to leave and walk out of any situation, any conversation. You're not obligated to stay and take it. So as young kids, we were all basically obligated to take whatever our parents dished out at us because we had nowhere else to go. And that's what makes kids so vulnerable. But now you have the right to leave any situation or any relationship that's hurting you anytime, no questions asked. And your boyfriend's parents don't just get to say whatever they want to you and expect you to go along with it, and neither does anyone else. You deserve a lot better. So you can also talk to your boyfriend about this, about what his parents are saying, and ask him to stick up for you in these conversations if he isn't already. I don't know if they're happening in front of him or if it's after he's left the room or something like that. But tell him how you feel and get him on your side to be your ally in pushing back against these oppressive and weight stigmatizing things that his parents are saying because it's not cool and he needs to stand up for you too. Now, the other can of worms is if your boyfriend is telling you that his parents are saying that stuff, but they're not actually saying it to your face, that is something that you're going to need to deal with with him. So in that case, the boundary you have to set is with him. You need to tell him that it hurts your feelings to know that they're saying those things about you, that you'd really rather not know, that you've had a long history of fighting your body and being criticized for your weight by your, your dad, and that you've done a lot of work to make peace with it, and you don't want him to undermine all that work by passing along these critical comments from his parents. So ask that if they say anything to him, he just keep it to himself and not share it out of respect for you. And if he doesn't honor that, then I would really question whether he's worthy of you because you deserve to be with someone who respects you for who you are, body and mind and soul, everything. And you deserve to be with someone who doesn't stigmatize you for your weight or pass along stigmatizing comments from other people. So we're giving him a free pass here. At first, you can talk to him and say, hey, please don't pass along these comments. And if he stops doing it, then great. He just didn't know. Sometimes 
people, I don't want to generalize about genders or anything like that, but sometimes people can be a little insensitive at first. And then when you point something out to them, they're like, oh, got it. Right. That was that was dumb of me. So we're giving him the benefit of the doubt. But if he doesn't stop, if he keeps passing along the things that they say about you, then I would really question whether he's, like I said, good enough for you. Because there are lots of guys out there who would love to be with you and who won't hurt your feelings like this. And so if he doesn't stop, you have an option there too. I will say a lot of us humans tend to seek out partners that remind us of our parents. And in relationships, we tend to recreate dynamics from our past in order to try to heal them or make it right. I've been through that myself many, many times. So given your experience with your dad, it's possible and maybe likely that you would be drawn to a partner who criticizes your body in the same ways. But try to remember that you were able to heal that dynamic with your dad. You were able to talk to him about it, to confront him and say, you know, you can't do this anymore more. And he was able to hear that and to stop, which is awesome. So you can find someone else and you absolutely deserve to find someone else who is free of that dynamic too, to have a relationship that doesn't have that dynamic of body criticism as a part of it. So if your boyfriend is complicit in this issue of his parents criticizing you, maybe this can open the door for you to share more with him about your history, to talk it out with him like you did with your dad. And maybe he'll he'll listen and maybe that'll bring you you and your boyfriend closer together, which would be amazing. And if not, I think, you know, it's really worth looking at whether you need to find someone else who's better match for you, who really deserves you, because anyone who's willing to continue hurting you about your size by making stigmatizing comments about your size really doesn't deserve you. You deserve a hell of a lot better. So I hope that helps. And I'm wishing you really good luck with this conversation. And if you want to submit your own question for a chance to have it answered on an upcoming episode, go to christyharrison.com slash questions. That's christyharrison.com slash questions. And you can ask your question there. And if you want a whole library of answers from me to answer your questions, help you master intuitive eating and making peace with food in your body, you can join my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. The course has 13 modules of content teaching you all the principles of intuitive eating in depth, plus an exclusive monthly Q&A podcast that I do just for participants in this course course, which has answers to hundreds and hundreds of participants' questions already. And when you join the course, you can ask me your questions and have me answer them in the following month's Q&A. So it's much more real-time experience than these questions on the main podcast, because I answer these. This one was from like August of 2017 or something like that. So way long ago. And you'll also get access to our private Facebook group in my online course, which is exclusively for course participants. And it's full of really lovely people who are so supportive and just amazingly there for each other and great on this intuitive eating journey. It's really important to have support when you're doing something that's so against the grain like this. So it's a nice place to go to just like know that people are going to understand and be able to talk through some of the things that come up as you go through the course and as you go through the journey to making peace with food and your body. Plus, I'm in there answering questions every weekday, providing guidance with my wonderful staff. And so you really get access to me, individual attention, as well as community support and individual self-study in this course. If you're ready to become an intuitive eater and leave diet culture behind once and for all, learn more and sign up for the course at christyharrison.com course. That's christyharrison.com course. 
We're brought to you today by Masterclass. Imagine learning cooking from Gordon Ramsay or photography from Annie Leibovitz or basketball from Steph Curry, my hometown fave. Now you can with Masterclass. Masterclass produces online classes taught by the best in the world. You can choose from classes taught by over 30 masters across a wide range of fields such as writing, film, acting, cooking, and lots more. When you're healing your relationship with food and your body, it's so important to start to pursue other hobbies. So I love that Masterclass teaches you all these diverse fields and skills. And you can also learn to cook, which is a really important part of healing your relationship with food as well. Whether you're pursuing your passion, developing your career, or just looking to learn something new, Masterclass gives you access to the best at their craft so that you can master yours. And if you're interested in more than one class, you can check out the All Access Pass. With the new All Access Pass, you can unlock every class from over 30 masters, all for the price of just two. Food Psych listeners can get the all-access pass at masterclass.com slash food psych. Learn from the best in the world at masterclass.com slash food psych. That's masterclass.com slash F-O-O-D-P-S-Y-C-H. We're also brought to you today by Casper. Sleep is such an essential part of self-care, and Casper is a sleep brand that creates an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. With three mattress models, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential, Casper mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your body's natural shape. Not to mention the breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night so you're not going to be waking up in a pool of sweat anymore. And it's delivered right to your door with free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. But the best part is you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. After all, you spend one-third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable. I can tell you that third of my life is so much more fulfilling since my husband and I got a Casper two and a half years ago. My back feels great when I wake up. I don't have any neck pain and nobody's rolling into the center of the bed like we used to with the old mattress. We stay put, but we don't get swallowed up by the bed either because it's got a perfect blend of softness and support. Get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash psych and using the offer code psych, P-S-Y-C-H at checkout. That's casper.com slash psych and use the offer code PSYCH, P-S-Y-C-H, for $50 off your mattress purchase. Terms and conditions apply. And now, without any further ado, let's go talk to Jennifer Rollin. So tell me about your relationship with food growing up. Sure. So I think as a little kid, I definitely really enjoyed food. I remember, this is super random, but my favorite book, which I had my mom read to me all the time, was Minnie and Mickey Mouse's Picnic. And I think <laughs> I loved it because like, they described like the whole... like gourmet picnic that they had. So I definitely enjoyed food and and had a love of it. But I think growing up with my mom being a registered dietitian, that definitely played into kind of my relationship with food a lot as well. Oh, I bet. What was that like? Yeah. So she, when I was a little kid, she was more of a kind of diety dietitian. So she would make, I remember her making some strange things like tofu pumpkin pie, which was as disgusting as it sounds. And she also, when I was younger, sometimes would talk to me about, you know, I remember eating chips and she would be like, why don't you have an apple? Just seemingly innocuous things. But I think that I definitely picked up the message that certain foods were quote unquote good and certain foods were quote unquote bad. But as a child, I definitely was kind of like naturally rebellious. And so the way that I picked that up was I was like, I'm going to eat chips in front of you um, and like enjoy every moment of it. So that was kind of my 
pushed back, I think, as a little kid and as a teenager. That's kind of lucky that you had that rebellious instinct in you. Yeah. I mean, I think it was not just in the food domain, obviously, but I think that those messages kind of stayed there and maybe lingered for a while. But for a very long time, I think I kind of went in the other direction in eating whatever the heck I wanted and making a big display of it in front of my mom. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting. How did she respond to that? Yeah, so she sometimes would get frustrated about it. Like I remember my dad and I, my whole family, we would go out to eat, you know, and we'd go to a Mexican restaurant and they would bring like the basket of chips. And then my dad and I would like eat the whole basket of chips. And then they would say, you know, the waiter would come by and be like, oh, would you like another? My mom would be like, oh no, they're fine. And we'd be like, yes, please. (laughs) So I think she tried to, and, you know, I have a lot of compassion for her because I think, being trained in traditional dietetics, she thought that what she was doing was helpful. And I think she had a fear of me becoming unhealthy. So I think it came from a really good place, but it definitely was misguided at the time. Totally. It sounds like it was, she was just steeped in the diet culture mentality that most dietitians even still are steeped in. Yeah, absolutely. And did that affect your relationship with food in any sort of disordered ways or did that rebellious instinct sort of protect you from doing anything with food yourself? Yeah. So I think the rebellious part of me, that was pretty protective for a very long time. I think I went on only, I say only because I work with people who've been on like many, many diets, but I went on maybe like one or two very short-lived dieting attempts when I was in high school that I promptly like got bored of and gave up. But I would say for the most part, like through through high school and part of college and childhood, I was pretty protected when it came to food just because I was so rebellious and frankly, like focused on other things. I was very perfectionistic about musical theater. And so I all I cared about was like getting the lead roles in place. I wasn't as focused on what I was putting in my mouth. It was more about like, how can I sing better? And so I think that was protective, but I definitely had some body insecurities growing up for sure. Mm. Did anyone ever comment on your body or was it more just internalized stuff? I think it was pretty internalized. And looking back, I was And I hate to even say average or normal because I don't think there's an average or normal. But according to the lens of our diet culture, I would have been considered average sized. However, I think I compared myself even at a young age to people that I was friends with who were just naturally very thin. And so I saw myself as big in comparison, if that makes sense. Totally. I can very much identify with that. I had the same experience in childhood, like being friends with very naturally thin kids. And I was fairly small myself too, but I wasn't as small as they were. And just sort of comparing different body parts and being like, oh, I'm bigger, you know, was definitely sort of got in my head. Yeah. Even though later on, it was, I think, the thin privilege was there and more obvious to me or more obvious looking back now at least. But I think there's a certain point where a lot of kids just go through this comparison stage. And it's interesting in diet culture because body size is so polarized or, you know, given so much like moral weight to use a pun, I guess. Like (laughs) it's people will 
feel bad about themselves they compare themselves and see themselves as larger which yeah yeah it sounds like that's kind of what was happening for you no that was absolutely my experience but in hindsight i think thin privilege protected me in the sense of i wasn't getting that message from my pediatrician or my doctor nobody told me that i needed to lose weight i think the only external indication i had of that was really my own perception of kind of innocuous comments that my mom would make, which she swears to this day. And I believe that they were not meant to be shaming in any way. But I think I was very already very sensitive around that area. So just little comments about I remember when I was 12 trying on a bathing suit and she was like, have you thought about getting a one piece? And so again, I think she was just like, not even paying any attention and probably just did not want her 12 year old in like a skimpy bikini. But in my mind, I took that to mean she thinks that I'm too big. Right. Yeah. And you're already sensitized to that. And it sounds like she already had a little bit of that food police role too. So it probably made sense in your mind to like attribute that to her. Exactly. And I think also growing up, my brother and my mom were kind of similar in terms of being really active. And my dad and I were pretty sedentary and enjoyed desserts and which obviously is healthful. But I think I perceived it as my mom food policing me more than my brother. And I attributed that to my size, if that makes sense, in comparison to to his size, even though, again, in hindsight, I think it was more that my brother was just not drawn to the tortilla chips, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Right. He sort of naturally fell more in line with the food police rules. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes total sense. And I think, like, there's probably some gender stuff going on there, too, right? Like, I I know that in a patriarchal society, women's bodies are policed so much more than men's bodies and sort of having a boy and a girl seems to always be an interesting thing for parents to navigate, like how to treat them as equally as possible. Or what do you end up saying to the girl that you wouldn't say to the boy or vice versa? Yeah. And I completely agree because there's such a paradigm of, oh, he's a growing boy. And even like joking about how much your teenage son eats. But I think when you have a teenage girl, some people who are very steeped in diet culture themselves, there is more of an emphasis on what is she eating. And I definitely agree. There's a lot of gender. I think that plays into that as well. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, so how did it unfold for you then as you got into college and were able to start making your own food decisions? So I think when I first went to college, it was still very much the rebellious piece, especially because I wasn't at my mom's house and I felt like I had all this freedom. So I did go out and maybe get things that she wouldn't keep in the house, like potato chips, things like that. But then it was kind of a little bit later in college that I remember trying on a dress. And I guess I should say that I believe that my weight was above my natural set point, just based on the fact that I drank a lot in college and sometimes I would eat dinners. So that was the reason why I say that. And I was completely sedentary. So I noticed I wasn't too concerned about, honestly, my weight being a lot higher than it had ever been historically until I was trying on a dress. And I remember like the size that I usually was did not fit. And so that was kind of the moment for me where I was like, I want to go on a diet and lose weight in the quote unquote healthy way. I should 
preface that I had like a one month period my senior year of high school where I pretty heavily restricted and lost weight as a result. So it was only for a month though. So I had that though in the back of my head and I was like, I know how obsessive I can get. So I'm just going to do this in a quote unquote healthy way. Obviously that did not go very well. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, I feel like that's not a spoiler alert right there at all. No, no surprise actually. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And admittedly in the beginning, it was not, I mean, it was stupid diety foods. Like I remember eating Weight Watchers meals, which are disgusting and just foods that didn't even make any sense, but just were very diety. So I guess kind of the turning point for me with that was my family and I went on vacation to a wellness resort. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I met with a nutritionist there for like one session because you got a bunch of things included in the stay. You got services. So I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I might as well see this dietitian. She can assess how I'm doing. And so the dietitian met with me. And this was when I was on my eating stupid diet foods kick. Definitely under eating. But again, it was more like what you would see of like a typical dieter, whatever that means. And so I remember meeting with her and she did some stuff that was super unhelpful, such as I think she did some calculation. She gave me like a calorie counted meal plan and told me that I was eating too little and I needed to increase my intake, but also told me that I needed to lose weight, (laughs) more weight. And I'd already lost some weight. So that was when like the turning point for me, when things spiraled out of control. And then I went on to develop an eating disorder, which honestly was more surprising to me, I think, than to anyone else, just given almost an entire history of not being too concerned with my weight. Like, again, I had those, I had negative feelings about my body, but I was never, in fact, I often veered in the opposite direction of just not caring at all about movement or food choices, not thinking about it at all. So I went from like complete mindlessness to obsession, essentially. So thankfully, it wasn't a super long period of time that I struggled, but it was enough to really scare me, but also give me a lot of compassion. And because honestly, before I had very little understanding about eating disorders and going through that experience personally, and I would later learn that there was someone else, I'm not going to identify them, but very close to me, a relative who also had an eating disorder. So there were some genetic ties there as well. That's interesting. How did your relationship with food change from that dieting, you know, sort of the supposedly sensible dieting that you were doing before to when you developed an eating disorder? Like what were some of the mental and behavioral shifts that you experienced with that? Because I always think of it as a spectrum, you know, that from dieting to full-blown eating disorder is really just a spectrum of behaviors and they're sort of becoming more and more acute and taking over your life more and more as you go further on the spectrum. But they're really, you know, it's a lot of the same stuff, but it's also sometimes there's an evolution of like how you're thinking about food and your body and how it takes over your life that it worsens at that point. Definitely. And there was definitely like a, it almost felt like a switch that kind of turned on. And definitely what I was doing before was disordered, but it wasn't obsessive. It was something, it was like, you know, the one or two diets I'd been on before where I ate a bunch of diety foods, exercised a little bit, and then kind of gave up and moved on with my life. But I think when the 
the switch flipped for me, it became increasingly rigid, increasingly cutting out or severely reducing certain food groups. And I think the best way I could explain the difference for me is that it went from just one aspect of my life, like this is the weird thing that I'm doing with food as of the moment, to my entire life, where that is what I was thinking about all day long. And it was an intense anxiety around food that I'd never experienced before. So, you know, like eating at a restaurant was something that was, I would think about for like a week before. So it just, the level, I guess, of fear and anxiety was significantly higher when it became the eating disorder, if that makes sense. And I would say the level of rigidity as well. Like before, if I didn't have my Weight Watchers meal or whatever, I would eat something else. But this time it was, it was a lot more rigid. So I think those were probably, and then also it started to make me more and more isolated as well as we know is the typical trajectory for people with eating disorders. Right. Yeah. Because when you get that obsessive about food, it's hard to partake in your life anymore. It's hard to go out and engage with people around food. And so you kind of isolate yourself. And that I really identify with that too, as like the difference between the sort of low level dieting that I was doing before and then what happened when it spiraled into really disordered territory was like that mental obsession, that taking over of my mental and physical space all day long, every day, and sort of dictating all of my behaviors and comings and goings and stuff. It was like all centered around, okay, what am I going to eat? When am I going to eat it? What am I going to bring or not bring? Or how am I going to get this weird food need that I suddenly have to cut out a certain food group met at this place that I'm going? And Yeah. No, and it's mentally, it's physically, but also really mentally exhausting because it's that constant noise in your head. Totally. Yeah, it really takes over and prevents you from, I always say like it's the life thief, you know, diet culture is the life thief and disordered eating too. It's like steals your life because it it prevents you from being able to engage with other aspects of your life. You become this sort of like food and body focused automaton that's just, <laughs> you know, going through the motions to like appease your diet culture robot overlord or something that's <laughs> telling you what to do. No, that's such a good description. And, you know, I'm similar to many other people that I've worked with who struggle with eating disorders in the sense of I got suddenly very interested in nutrition. And I thought about, oh, I maybe I should be a personal trainer, which like now is so laughable to me because like I really am not that nothing actually sounds less appealing to me in a variety of ways. But I think that I mean, when that's your whole focus, your brain just starts to filter everything through that lens. So even when thinking about your career path or thinking about your hobbies or interests, like suddenly I became super interested in cooking really nice meals for my parents. You know, it was kind of like we see in the the Minnesota starvation study, you know, totally. The, I was just going to say, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I had all the things of like the obsession on food and the hoarding recipes and Hmm. I know it's so interesting. I mean, that experiment, I should say, like trigger warning for anyone listening who might go look it up. But I think it's the findings of that experiment are so important for understanding the effects of starvation on people's 
physical and mental health because these were people who were selected for the experiment. It was like, if anyone doesn't know about this experiment, you know, a little background on it is that it was done in the 1940s to determine the effects of starvation on people and how to refeed the population in Europe that was decimated by World War II and the people who were starving. Like, how do we refeed them in a way that's not going to hurt them? Because people can develop all kinds of reactions to refeeding too quickly after starvation that can cause problems and even heart attacks and stuff like that. So it had to be done in a really conscious way, but also like understanding what were the physical and mental health ramifications of the starvation these people had gone through. And so to figure that out, they this team led by Ansel Keys at I think the University of Minnesota, maybe, mm-hmm. they examined conscientious objectors, people who signed up to do this experiment to help with the war effort, but that didn't didn't want to fight the war. But they selected people from this pool of conscientious objectors who were like the most physically and mentally stable, you know, the people that were psychologically the most stable, that were least likely to have psychological issues from the starvation experiment. And yet these guys like had incredible mental health issues that arose as a part of the study to the point where some of them had to even drop out of the study. Like one guy broke out of the compound where they were being kept to do this experiment and was foraging through the trash because people were, they were starving and they, that the effects of that on the brain are very profound. And one of the things that comes out of that study that I think is so interesting is that a lot of these guys were early in their career trajectory. They were like college age or just out of college or whatever, and they were kind of starting to determine what they were going to do with their lives. A number of them became chefs. Some of them became farmers. They like got involved with the food industry in some ways, a sort of high percentage of them. And they and the ones who did that said that they didn't really have huge interest in food before the study. So it's really, really fascinating. And I so identify with that too, having been a food writer as my first career and then getting drawn into nutrition as my second career, all the while struggling in my own disordered eating. It's like so understandable now from that lens because I'm like, yeah, I never was interested in food before. I was never, never really cared that much about food as a child or early in college before I developed the eating disorder. That was never something that was on my radar. I wanted to write about like vastly different things than that. I always wanted to be a journalist and a writer, but food was never on my mind. Food was never part of the equation. And then after getting so caught up with food, that's when the switch flipped into like, ooh, I'm so interested in nutrition and farming (laughs) and organic food and gluten-free, like all this stuff, you know, it's just, it's wild. Yeah. And it's so interesting. And at the same time though, I mean, I, like I said before, I mean, I do think that things happen for a reason. And now here you are shining such a bright light on some of these issues. So while sometimes people's intentions initially for going into the field might be to like learn how to diet harder, you know, I hear that (laughs) from a lot of people who become RDs, but I think there obviously are real ways you can impact people without a diet or weight loss focus, which I think you've shown through your work. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And same with you too. I think it's, there's a lot of us, I think, who've gone through that in this field who ultimately come to a place of healing for ourselves. Because I think too, like, I mean, part of what I think attracted me to this without really knowing it, but I think this happens for a lot of people in their careers is like, you want to master something or heal something that was 
an issue for you. You're drawn to something so that you can maybe figure it out for yourself. And there's a part of it that's this like personal curiosity. At least that's definitely how it was for me. I wanted to know how to master nutrition in part so that I would lose weight. You know, that was definitely the diet culture informed part of it. But there was also a part of me that was like, I want to understand why I struggle so much with this stuff. And maybe there's a way that I can help myself feel better. There was a part of it that was actually self-protective and self-compassionate too. And I think that part ultimately won out, thank God. Absolutely. So you're a therapist. So did you start your trajectory to becoming a therapist with that in mind of wanting to help people with weight loss and dieting and stuff like that? Or did you make any forays into being a personal trainer before you went down that road? (laughs) Thankfully, no. Good. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So what's funny is I actually me wanting to be a therapist predates my eating disorder. I wasn't 100% sure what I wanted to do for a little while. I thought maybe I would be a theater teacher, but I always kind of knew I wanted to be in a helping profession. And there was that piece of me that was always interested in psychology and human behavior, even before the eating disorder. So I definitely didn't go into it there was definitely that element of wanting to learn more so that I could help myself, but I didn't go into it from a place of wanting to focus on helping people lose weight or diet. So yeah, that wasn't a piece of it for me, but there was always that piece of wanting to help people. And honestly, I think I thought originally that I would be a therapist. I didn't actually plan on being an eating disorder therapist, but things work out for a reason. And honestly, now I couldn't see myself doing anything else. Yeah, it sounds like it found you, like that specialty found you through your own journey, probably. Yeah, exactly. Because one thing I want to say is that, like many people, I didn't realize I was sick for a little, you know, couple months at least. And something that was tough for me was I felt like I told a few friends that I was concerned, like I knew there was something going on and they looked at me and they're like, no, I mean, you're fine. Like you, you look great. Like you don't look sick. Da, da, da. And so I felt like I wasn't taken super seriously because I never reached a point of appearing really ill. And I mentioned that because first off, I think it's important to shatter the stigma that you can tell whether someone has an eating disorder based on what they look like. But that has definitely informed some of my passion for looking at dispelling, I guess, eating disorder myths and making sure that all eating disorders are taken seriously. But yeah, so essentially, once I realized that I had a problem, I sought help from a local eating disorder dietitian who now refers people to me, which is Mm. funny and ironic (laughs) because I like live in the same general area, and a therapist who I saw outpatient for about a year. And I think like going through that journey but honestly doing a lot of the body image piece on my own, because in hindsight, my therapist at the time was, was pretty fat phobic. And so that was when I came across the health at every size movement, which I can say has had the most profound impact, I think on my personal and my professional life. Mm, I so agree with that. I feel the same way. And I also identify with what you said about not being taken seriously at first because your body didn't seem quote unquote sick or quote unquote emaciated by the standards of our society of what like supposedly looks like an eating disorder, which is so 
informed by fat phobia. The picture, the stereotypical picture of an eating disorder in our society is such a small fraction of what eating disorders actually look like. But the fact that that's held up as like the one way you can supposedly tell if someone has an eating disorder just shows like how toxic this culture is and how much it judges people by their looks to say that like, oh, you're fine. You look great, quote unquote, great as a way to dismiss someone's concerns with food. I think that's just such a problem. Yeah. And I, I went to a couple of therapists who, you know, same thing. I was like, I knew I had a problem. I, I needed help and was ready to ask for it. But instead of having a therapist who finally I did find one that was able to say, you know, tell me about your relationship with food in a non-judgmental way. But like the first couple that I tried this with and cracked the door open, it was like, oh, you're not thin enough to have an eating disorder. I'm not concerned about you. Like, you're not emaciated. Or the second one was like, well, you know, everybody has some food issues and you're being too hard on yourself and you're too hard on yourself in general, which like was true. I was definitely too hard on myself in general. But in this particular arena, I think I had, you know, I was onto something that I actually was struggling with food and that got sort of swept under the rug because again, I didn't quote unquote look sick. Yeah, and I mean, that makes me so sad for you and it's so messed up. And I think what's even sadder is the fact that, I mean, it's amazing that you continue to open that door and to seek out therapists, but some people I think will give up, you know, if they hear from the first person, because these things are so hard to be open about and to accept that you need help. So it's just such a, it's doing such a disservice to people to be, I mean, first off, judging a mental illness on the basis of someone's physical state is really troubling. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that is a big passion area of mine. And for me, I was even protected by some of my thin privilege at the time that eventually people did take me seriously. But for some of my current clients in higher weight bodies, they've had people completely invalidate their struggles. And that is horrific. Totally. Yeah. I think that's the other piece of this is like that people in larger bodies who are restricting and do engaging in all the behaviors and the mental patterns of someone with an eating disorder like anorexia, but don't appear emaciated or even in a small culturally considered small body. It's like, oh, no, you couldn't possibly be restricting or like you're doing fine. You're doing great. Like keep up the good work because you're losing weight. And that's what society tells people in larger bodies to do. So I think it can be so toxic to have those messages out there because finally when people in larger bodies do end up getting help for eating disorders, often that, you know, it's been such a long time in the coming to get help. They haven't been able to get help for so long because no one has accepted it or taken it seriously. That makes it all the harder to recover. It's awful because as you know, they're prescribing for people in higher weight bodies behaviors that would be considered extremely disordered and are disordered for people in, in smaller bodies. But because our culture is so fat phobic, it's seen as whatever you need to do to quote unquote lose the weight has got to be the healthy choice, even though we know that it's not. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. The prescribing of disordered behaviors for a certain segment of the population, is just unethical. It needs to be called out as such. And I'm glad that people like you and me and all of our colleagues in the health at every size field are calling that out because I think that's going to be the key to helping stop this mass epidemic of eating disorders that we have now. This, I think it really is people talk about the quote unquote obesity epidemic, but I think it's a fat phobia epidemic and a disordered eating epidemic more than anything. 
A hundred percent. I think that is actually incredibly well framed. And I think that fat phobia and eating disorder treatment, I think people, it hurts everyone because even if someone, of course, it, the people it hurts the most are people in higher weight bodies who are not taken seriously or even encouraged in their eating disorder, which is atrocious. It also hurts thin people as well because it prevents them from reaching at times it could prevent them from reaching full recovery. I think it really hurts everyone. And it's problematic to me that, and again, I think it's because I'm so steeped in the health at every size movement now, but it seems genuinely confusing to me that somebody can be an eating disorder treatment provider and be fat phobic, how those two things, I just, I don't even understand how they can treat people. I know. I completely agree. And I think for me, and I'm curious to hear your trajectory with this too, but like for me, the way into understanding that was just going to conferences, reading journals, reading up on everything I could get my hands on about eating disorder treatment when I finally decided I wanted to specialize in that in my career as a dietitian. And through that process of immersing myself, just hearing health at every size mentioned different places and having science on it presented to me, because pretty much every eating disorder conference that's out there has at least one or two sessions, if not all the sessions on topics related to health at every size or where that comes up. And there definitely is still way too much fat phobia in the eating disorder treatment world as well, because peppered into those conferences that have one or two health at every size focused sessions there will probably be several sessions on like weight management or that have a sort of fat phobic lens on eating disorder treatment but i think if you're paying attention and you're doing research and continuing education on this stuff it's hard not to notice that health at every size is considered a best practice for treating people with eating disorders and so it, it just it boggles my mind too how people can be fat phobic still and still encouraging weight loss for some people or quote unquote weight management or these treatment centers that have a weight management track for people in larger bodies or people with binge eating disorder. Why is that happening? You know, with all the good science and evidence that we have out there that's actually being talked about in the eating disorder treatment community fairly robustly. Honestly, as you were saying that, first off, I think a lot of providers don't even know what health at every size is, or if they know about it, don't know that it is an evidence-based approach. And I think secondly, there's a big problem of providers not focusing on evidence-based treatment for eating disorders. So I wrote a piece where it briefly mentioned this, but there are a lot of providers who are practicing, and I know some people are going to get upset about this, but they're practicing predominantly psychodynamic psychotherapy or psychoanalytic therapy for people with eating disorders, which it does not have the evidence base. And certainly it's not to say you can't incorporate that into your treatment, but I strongly believe as treatment providers that we need to be leading with the approaches that actually have an evidence base. And that includes using health at every size. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a great point. I mean, I'm sure a lot of providers who've been doing it a long time, maybe they found something that feels like it works and want to stick with it. But I think we all have to be brushing up on the evidence all along. And that's why continuing education is a thing, you know, and I think it's so important to be doing evidence-based work. And when the evidence just isn't there for something to look at, well, what does the evidence support? Absolutely. And also to look at another thing I could get on my soapbox about, which, but I will try not to <laughs> talk about at length is 
also people saying that they treat eating disorders who have no actual experience in treating eating disorders and no real knowledge of it, but think that because maybe they have felt big some days, they just assume that it's not that difficult to treat. And when we know that eating disorders are the deadliest mental illness, it's really unethical to be treating someone with an eating disorder when you don't have that training or experience. Totally. I completely agree. And when you haven't done the work on yourself, too, because I think there's so much, I think therapists at least get a little more training in this or at least lip service paid to this where like we need to do the work ourselves as providers to understand what's going on within us to understand what we're bringing to the table and the counter transference that could be happening with clients that we're working with and explore that and figure that out before we go treating people with these conditions that maybe we have stigma against or we struggle with ourselves or whatever and with dietitians I think that's really ignored you know in our profession and, and a lot of other health professions as well it's like not given enough airtime to talk about how like providers themselves need to be doing the work on understanding our own biases, understanding our own life stories and how they affect how we treat people and clients that we work with and not going into something that is going to evoke our own biases or make us biased against our our patients. Like, you know, the research shows that people who treat quote unquote obesity have the highest rates of internalized or weight stigma period of pretty much all healthcare providers. And there's also very high levels among dietitians as well. And it's like, we really have to be looking at that because we know, again, from the evidence that weight stigma kills people, weight stigma harms people, weight stigma is associated with all these negative health outcomes that are blamed on being in a larger body. And if we have the providers that are supposedly helping people's health perpetuating that stigma and doling out that stigma to their clients and patients, that's not okay and that's not helping at all. Yeah. And it's so hard because I think, unfortunately, a lot of the providers who are very fat phobic, it's a complete blind spot for many of them. You know, I think that they don't even, many of them don't even have an awareness, but I do think that's part of the job of being a good clinician is when your patients, when many of them are afraid of fat, if fat is also something that you fear and you promote that message you know, it's going to be really hard to help someone. Mm-hmm, absolutely. I mean, I'm curious in your experience and and sort of what you would say to like other providers who are working to suss out their own internalized fat phobia and move through it and maybe work through their own disordered eating as well and move through that before treating people with these conditions. Like what can people do? What can providers do to help process those things? Sure. So I think the first step is really developing an awareness. I know there are some tests online that you can do. I think there's one on a weight bias perception self-test that you can do, but also just thinking for yourself, thinking about clients that you might see. And if you have a client in a higher weight body or a client in a thin body and they walk into the room, are there any assumptions that you're making? So do you automatically assume that clients in higher weight bodies are binge eating? Do you assume that somebody who walks in in a thin body is restricting if you're an eating disorder professional? So thinking about what your inherent biases are. And then I think also there's definitely no shame and it can only benefit you to really get some of your own help. So whether that's meeting with your own therapist to kind of look at getting to that final stage of healing for yourself as it relates to your relationship with food and your body. And also just really being compassionate with yourself that 
many of us were born or at some point believed. I definitely, when I was younger, believed in the weight-centric paradigm and that we can't know what we don't know, but once we know better, we can do better. Mm. Yeah, that's really important. And self-compassion, I think, is such a huge part of all of this, right? Both for people recovering and for people trying to do this work and help others recover or just provide health care in general. I think it's really important to be compassionate with ourselves for how we've been hoodwinked by diet culture, really, because it's not our fault. Like, it's not our fault that we bought into this stuff. It's not our fault that we struggled with eating disorders and disordered eating. It's not our fault that we, all of it, right, that we go through all of this stuff and that we have had our lives stolen by diet culture. Like, it's not our fault. And once we know better, we can do better. But also, like, the process of learning to do better, do things differently is a slog and can be really tough. We're swimming upstream sometimes in in this culture until we find those communities that really support us in doing the size acceptance work and the body image work can feel like we're kind of out there in the wilderness. Definitely. And I think that's why doing your own work, it's not only going to benefit you, but it's also going to benefit the clients that you work with. And what you talked about in the sense of feeling isolated, I think that's why it's so important to find a community of other health at every size professionals, either in person or online. So that way you have someone who gets it, because I think that can definitely be frustrating if you feel like you're, and I've certainly felt this way before, you're the lone person in a group of professionals who believes in this approach. Yeah, I'm interested in how that has evolved for you, because I know you started the Health at Every Size Therapist and Nutritionist Facebook group, and I'm part of that community, and it's just been such a great place to connect with fellow professionals from around the world. And I'm curious to hear like how you kind of got there to creating this community, because I'm sure it was kind of lonely at first. Yeah. So when I found health at every size, I really immersed myself in it. I read everything that I could. I listened to things. I did my research on it and I was really sold on health at every size. I really believed in it. I saw how it helped me and it had transformed my relationship with my body. And I was so passionate about it. But I think once I got my head out of that bubble, I realized that many of the other providers in my area, even eating disorder treatment providers, didn't feel the same way. And so I was networking with a local eating disorder therapist, and she told me that she was writing a book. And I asked her what the book was on, and the book had weight loss in the title, and she does all eating disorder work. And so we proceeded to get into an argument where I started spouting out because, again, I was really up on all the latest research on health at every size. And she went back and forth with me for a little bit. And she just said, basically ended the conversation by saying that, quote unquote, obesity killed someone in her family. So after that, I was so angry and frustrated and felt really alone and isolated. And so that was actually I'm actually in hindsight, very thankful that I had, even though it was distressing at the time this disagreement with this other clinician because it prompted me to create the Health at Every Size Professionals Facebook group, which has grown to such an amazing community that I never could have anticipated. So, And it's just felt so nice to have that support. Yeah, that's amazing. And I that is a really interesting experience that I have also had in my professional life of starting to do the work in eating disorders and seeing some of the people that were kind of the leaders in the field in my area 
writing diet books and talking <laughs> about weight loss. And I went to lunch with one clinician one time who was like, well, it's not a problem to pursue weight loss. Like that in and of itself is not wrong, you know? And I was just like, like record scratch, you know, <laughs> like what's happening? And those moments of just like stickiness and things feeling like such a dissonance, I think also helped propel me to like look deeper and sort of look into this. Like, is that true? Is Does everybody think this way? Is that what it is to be an eating disorder clinician to sort of live in this cognitive dissonance? Or is there actually a way to make sense of things? And it turns out like, yes, there is, you know, that you actually can be an eating disorder clinician and fully embrace health at every size and not push people to weight loss no matter what their body size. And like, to me, that's such a more fulfilling and sort of it feels like living in integrity to me. Like I, I think I couldn't feel like I was living in integrity if I were to write diet books or promote weight loss to some people, but also promote eating disorder recovery to others. And like, how do you even navigate that line between what is that to even practice in a way that is recommending weight loss to some people? It's just, just doesn't make any sense to me. Basically what it's saying is I believe in helping some people to have a healthy relationship with food, but not fat people, essentially. Right. I mean, there's nothing healthy about a diet. There's nothing healthful about the intentional pursuit of weight loss because that usually entails disordered, unhealthy, restrictive behaviors. And I completely agree. It just wouldn't feel in alignment, honestly, with my true values to be promoting that. And I even hear about some people in their marketing will put weight loss or weight management or something on their website, just they say to get people in the door. And for me, it would feel so against my ethics that I just, I would never even consider that. And honestly, it's been completely unnecessary because I have a very full practice and I never talk about weight or weight loss. And I'm, I'm very clear with people who call that that will not be my approach or focus. Right. Yeah. So it's possible from a business standpoint to have a thriving practice without promoting weight loss. And I have found that myself as well. It's been really amazing, actually, to make that transition from like, because I did some fence straddling at first, too, when I didn't really know or understand the depth of health at every size and why it was important for eating disorder recovery. I threw like a weight management on my website, too, for a while. And then as I learned more, I realized, oh, that's completely incompatible and I can't have that there anymore. And thankfully, was able to take it off and and continue to grow my business and saw that that didn't have any negative impact whatsoever. I mean, sure, if I was selling cleanses or something online, maybe I could make a lot of money, but that wouldn't be in alignment with what I really want to do. And I'm just fine doing well and being maybe less successful than if I was really pushing diets or something, but still making it work and making a living in this field. And you don't have to sell weight loss in order to make a living. Absolutely. And what's funny about the term weight management is I always, in the past, I saw it as more innocuous for a while. You know, I thought it was, well, weight management, oh, that could mean a lot of things, whatever, whatever. But as I've gotten more into health at every size, I've recognized how problematic that term is. And frankly, also how commonly used it is in people's marketing material, even people who don't preach intentional weight loss. But I had a client pretty recently in anorexia recovery who made some comment, I forget how it came up, but about the idea of weight management. And she's like, what is that? She basically said how triggering that phrasing was to her. And I think ever since that conversation, I can't look at weight management the same way because I realized that 
it is continuing to sell the false belief that we have ultimate control over our weight. And also it's something that needs to be carefully managed, you know, just like much like Weight Watchers, right? Totally. <laughs> so what I once saw is maybe more of an innocuous term. I now, I now can see the damage that that could do. Yeah, same. I mean, I think I, you know, never put weight loss on my site, but yeah. I had, you know, weight management because I felt like, well, that sort of could be many things and it could be about learning to manage your relationship with food and having your weight change as a result. You know, it was like all these sort of mental gymnastics to like <laughs> make it fit. But actually, yeah, realizing that like weight isn't something we need to manage. Weight management should not be a goal of anyone because your body takes care of that. Your body will work it out whatever weight it needs to be when you're practicing self-care behaviors to the best of your abilities and to the extent that you want to prioritize that. Your body will figure it out. We need to just type up that quote and put it on a photo because that was beautiful. <laughs> Seriously, that was beautifully said. Like, we don't need to practice weight management because our body manages our weight for us. If we nourish it appropriately, our body is very good at regulating our weight and we don't have to think about it or focus on it. Totally. Yeah. I think that's the crux of the whole non-diet and health at every size approach, right? Is to say like, let's take weight management and weight loss and just anything to do with weight off the table and put that on a shelf. Because what we need is to focus on actual self-care behaviors that are going to help people heal their relationships with food and feel their best and have energy and have relationships with things other than food in their lives, like people and be able to let go of the way that diet culture has such a hold on people's lives, you know, and that actually having a fulfilling life and having other aspects of your mental and physical health take priority over shrinking your body or managing the size of your body is what leads to actual health and not we don't need to have weight loss be part of that equation at all. Absolutely. And when we look at even from a health perspective, which there are plenty of people who, for whatever reason, have chronic illnesses or health conditions. And so I don't think health should be a barometer of our worth either. However, I think when we look at it from a pure health perspective, there are so many other like socioeconomic status has, is a much bigger predictor of, of health outcomes. But another big one, Harvard did like a 10-year study on longevity and they looked at what caused some people, they followed a sample size of men and saw basically when people died. And they found that the people who lived the longest were people who had the strongest social relationships. And this has been demonstrated in other studies as well, where they've looked at different areas of the world that have more people living to 100 years old. And they found that it was the close community and connection, which is one of the more devastating aspects of eating disorders is that they cause such a disconnection, such isolation. So basically what I'm trying to say is if we're even looking at it from a pure health perspective, it's far healthier to practice nourishing your body with food you actually enjoy, going out for ice cream with your friends, enjoying those close social relationships rather than focusing on trying to force your body into a size that maybe it was never meant to be. Oh, that's so well said. Very important message. Because, yeah, I think there's so much that goes into health, even from just talking physical health. But, of course, mental and physical health are so interconnected that we can't isolate them. And mental health has such a bearing on physical health. And there's so many things that go into our overall health that 
have nothing to do with the size of our body or the food that we eat or the amount of exercise that we get. That's about social connections, like you said, and meaningful work and fulfillment in our lives, you know, and feeling like we have a sense of purpose and just having all aspects of our lives be cared for and having self-compassion, not forcing ourselves to shrink our bodies and and also the socioeconomic piece and the environmental piece of which we don't have a lot of control. We don't have control over the stigma and trauma that we might experience in our lives. We don't have control over, to some extent, maybe, but not much at all, over what socioeconomic status we inhabit and certainly not as children and people growing up in this society. So, we have to acknowledge that there are these real things that are out of our control that are not within our power to change and that like food and and body size and exercise are sold to us as the solution to our health problems and that's a false solution it's a bait and switch we can't actually control our health through our food intake and our exercise the way that we've been told we can absolutely and i think a lot of this boils i mean for eating disorders, there's obviously a lot of different components, but when we're talking about generally for somebody who is fixated on trying to lose weight or change the way that they're eating, I think a lot of it boils down to life is unpredictable and we ultimately don't have, there is a lot of uncertainty that we have to sit with and fears that people have about aging or death or their relationships, like things that people feel that they don't have control over. And I think that often what I find is when people are focused on trying to quote unquote control their weight or control their food in a, you know, there's no healthy way to do that. I was going to say in an unhealthy way, but like, that's just unhealthy in general, that mindset. That's when I think often there are some underlying issues that maybe feel out of control or vulnerable. And I think the body is really just the external kind of smokescreen for what's really going on. Mm, so true. Yeah, it's it becomes sort of a coping mechanism that people can actually feel they have some control over, even though they don't. But there are so many things in our lives that we don't have control over that it feels sort of grounding or something to have something that you're trying to control. Absolutely. Even though it's a totally, like you said, it's a false refuge because, you know, our bodies and our weight, our weight is not something that we really have control over. We all have a genetic blueprint that is kind of the general set point weight range, you know, generally pounds that our body naturally will fight to maintain. And so I think we're sold the lie through diet culture that I can just pick a number and that's a number that my body will be. Right. Or even that, like, if this is a number that I think is healthful or range, that my body is going to stay in this range forever. And I think those myths are very harmful because then when our bodies inevitably change or when our bodies inevitably go back to the weight range in which they most healthfully maintain at when we're taking care of ourselves, we are sold the lie that somehow we have failed. Yeah, the myth of personal failure is strong within diet culture. It's the way that it keeps us stuck. It's the way that it keeps us coming back and paying more money and running on this hamster wheel that it tells us we need to be running on instead of looking at what it's actually doing to us and saying like, you know what, this is a lie and I'm going to opt out and being made to feel shame about our lack of control over our body size, which is lack of control over our body size is the default state for humans. We don't have control, like you said, because we have this genetic blueprint that, you know, yeah, within a certain range, our bodies might fluctuate, but it's not, we can't 
sustainably change it beyond that. And so being told that we can and we should is a way to take the focus away from the fact that diets don't work, that the diet industry is selling us flawed products and a way to sort of put the blame on people so that they keep buying more of those products without recognizing the faulty logic there. Yeah. And I think it capitalizes on many people in our society. We're not taught to be self-compassionate and we're often taught to be critical or hard on ourselves. And I think it capitalizes on that and on the fact that many people are vulnerable and don't feel great about themselves. And it's very unfortunate. But on the flip side of the coin, it's also very freeing when you realize that I don't need, my weight is not something that I need to try to micromanage or neither are my food choices that when I'm taking care of myself, my body is very capable of regulating my weight, regulating my hunger and fullness. And so really it's about unlearning all of the unhelpful things that we have learned through diet culture and getting back to that more natural connection with our bodies, which I think can be really hard and scary. And that's why it's good to seek out professional help if you're struggling. Totally. Yeah, I agree. Because I think people can hear these messages and try to do some work on their own of letting go of the myths of diet culture and trying to eat what they want and trying to honor hunger and fullness. But I think there's so much that can get in the way of that with really significant histories of disordered eating and stuff. Sometimes people are very out of touch with their hunger and fullness cues and very confused about what they actually want to eat. And that's normal, you know, when you've gone through that kind of trauma and it is a trauma to your body that's disconnected you from what really is all of our birthrights to have that intuitive relationship with food. That, that's the default mode, I'm always saying. You know, We all are born as intuitive eaters, but when we get so disconnected from it, sometimes we need help and support to get reconnected because I think there's so much in our culture that is pushing us in the direction of disconnection. And there's so much, even physiologically, that when we've been disconnected for a long time, that sort of perpetuates that disconnection. Definitely. And I think a lot of times people's food rules or diet culture beliefs or eating disorder thoughts, however it manifests for that person, often they're so ingrained that you really need that outside person to point out. Like something I'll see a lot with my clients, for instance, is which for some reason, many of my clients don't, I think, initially see as disordered is people, just a random example that came to mind, eating a lot of these like protein powder products. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's something I've been seeing a lot in my practice. So just pointing out like, hey, so how come, again, I don't believe any food is good or bad, right? It's all about being able to enjoy everything and dosage is important. So I always say you can overdose on donuts the same way you can die from drinking too much water or give yourself poison from eating too much kale. Like it's, it's everything in balance, but really that's when I would explore with a client, like, tell me about what is making you choose that protein cookie. And maybe could we kind of challenge yourself. So sometimes you're able to have a regular cookie because I'll sometimes share, I'm like, I don't disclose. I mean, sometimes I do, but I don't always preface it with back in my disordered days, but basically I have tried protein cookies and in my opinion, they taste like rubber. So if anyone tries to tell me that they eat them for the taste, that's always a red flag. Um, And they're like, they're just so delicious. I'm like, have you had a real cookie anytime recently? Yeah. Well, yeah, I've definitely seen that a lot too with people who like have been so caught in diet mentality and dieting 
behaviors for such a long time or disorder behaviors that they're not allowing themselves even the option of the real cookie. So it's like, oh, this protein cookie is amazing because it maybe is the most sweet and delicious thing that they're allowing themselves to eat in this very limited repertoire that they have. But how sad is that? I had a client tell me that she was obsessed with this particular beverage that in her disorder days wasn't allowed to have, quote unquote, allowed to have any sweets. And so this one beverage was the one sweet outlet that she had. But then looking back on it now is like, oh, my God, that tastes terrible. And I never, (laughs) never have a craving for it now, even though I could if I wanted to. And I can very much identify with that in my own experience, too, of looking back at some of the things I used to eat and think were a delicious, satisfying snack. And I'm like, I never buy that anymore. Like, I can't imagine (laughs) having that in the house, not because I'm not allowed, but just because there's so much more delicious stuff I can actually eat, you know, like chips and candy and cupcakes (laughs) and yogurt and all of this other stuff that's like, not the sort of sad diet version of things. Absolutely. So I'm always, for me, I always err on the side of caution when it comes to someone saying, oh, that's just a preference. I'm not saying for sure that it isn't a preference, but I would want to explore that a little bit more with the person. Totally. Yeah. So kind of getting under those intentions behind something. Yeah. Because that's something else that I'll sometimes talk about with people is that often it is the intention. I mean, some things are more crystal clear, right? If it's a specific diety food, then that's very evident where that's coming from. But I always give the example of like two people could order a salad and maybe for one person, they had pancakes for breakfast. They're not that hungry, but the salad looks really delicious to them. So they ordered the salad. They really enjoy it. And maybe for the other person, they looked at the menu in advance or like what is the quote unquote healthiest option for their eating disorder from that eating disorder mindset. And so they're feeling shame and guilt around the preference that they maybe they actually wanted something else on the menu, but they went with the salad. And so that is a choice from deprivation right? So that would not be the healthy choice if that person is really craving a burger. So I think it's really all about context. Totally. Yeah. There's no moral value to foods in and of themselves. And like a salad could be a perfectly intuitive choice for someone and a really disordered choice for someone else. And yeah, like the burger is sometimes the best choice you can make. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I love all this. And I I think it's so important to give people an example of, of those kinds of nuances, because I think diet culture is just so pervasive and diet mentality is so internalized that people don't always recognize it when they, they see it or they don't even it's just sort of the background chatter of their minds and they don't they aren't aware that it's happening. So I think working with professionals or getting some sort of support around recognizing those little ways that diet culture and diet mentality are manifesting in your mind and are leading you to make disordered choices about food. It takes a lot of undoing and a lot of noticing and, and becoming aware that sometimes it's really painful and hard and not always obvious how to do it. So I think support is really key. Definitely. Well, on that note, tell us more about your practice, you know, both your therapy practice and your recovery coaching practice and how people can learn more about your work. Sure. So I practice eating disorder therapy in Brockville, Maryland. So I have an office and I see people in person there. And then I also provide eating disorder recovery coaching, which is via Skype for people who maybe have a treatment team in place, but feel like they need that added support. Awesome. And we'll put links to all that in the show notes too, so people can find you and get in touch. Absolutely. And I think just the, as I know we're winding down here, one of the the final things I would say is that 
while eating disorders are exhausting and miserable and I would not wish them on anyone in a weird way in hindsight, I'm thankful for my experiences because I think it helps me to have a deeper understanding of myself and a better relationship with myself now. And it also helps me to, to better relate to my clients. And I'm sure you feel similarly, but this work is just so, so incredibly rewarding. And I see people recover and full recovery is definitely possible. So I would just encourage anyone, even if they're feeling like they're quote unquote, not sick enough, which is a common eating disorder thought to really reach out for help. Absolutely. I 100% agree. I feel like the life on the other side of recovery is so rich and beautiful and full and has so many more possibilities than you could ever imagine when you're in that very narrow place of thinking about food in your body 24-7. So I think it's always worth the effort and there's no such thing as not sick enough. Everybody deserves recovery. 100%. Like Even if it does not meet full eating disorder criteria, even disordered eating, I think can be so, so painful. And like you said, life on the other side, I think it's going to be more amazing than you could imagine. Not to say, you know, we don't have good and bad days in life, but there are a lot (laughs) ups and downs, but they're a lot better. And life is overall just so much more fulfilling than when you're trapped in an eating disorder. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer. This has been a pleasure and it just flew by. So I could talk to you forever. I know. I feel the same way. Well, thank you so much for having me and for all the amazing work you're doing. Thank you. So that's our show for today. Thanks again so much to Jennifer Rollin for joining us on this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you've gotten something out of this podcast, please help us reach more people who need to hear the anti-diet message by sharing this episode on Apple Podcasts or iTunes or whatever your favorite podcast platform is. And make sure you're subscribed as well. You can go to christyharrison.com slash subscribe to do it easily. That's christyharrison.com slash subscribe or just hit subscribe in whatever podcast platform you're listening to this on. If you're looking for some practical tips to get you started on your anti-diet journey, grab my free audio guide, Seven Simple Strategies for Finding Peace and Freedom with Food. Head over to christyharrison.com slash strategies to get it. That's christyharrison.com slash strategies. To get full show notes from this episode, including all the resources we discussed, plus a full transcript, head over to christyharrison.com slash 147. That's christyharrison.com slash 147. And to get the transcript, just scroll down to the bottom of the page and enter your email address. This episode was brought to you by my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. If you're ready to make peace with food and leave diet culture behind, come join this great community of people on the same journey by signing up for the course at christyharrison.com slash course. That's christyharrison.com slash course. Food Psych is edited and engineered by Podcast Fast Track, and I'm eternally grateful to our editor, Mike, for being so amazing to work with. Also, a big thanks to our community manager and content development associate, Ashley Saruya, our administrative assistant, Sarah Thompson, and our transcript assistant, Megan Saichi, for helping me out with all the moving parts that go into producing this show every week. Our album art was photographed by Abby Moore Photography and designed by Meredith Noble. And the music you're hearing behind me now is by a band called AWOL. And the track is called Food, used under the Creative Commons license. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, stay psyched. Stupid or scared, no work in the kitchen now. Who put you there in that perfect position now? Who 